Good morning, Precious Church. I'm Pastor Steve, and I'm preaching this morning. Um, but it, it really is indeed my, my privilege to, to take my turn in the pulpit this morning as we continue to focus our summer series on church health. For a few weeks now, we've set aside our normal practice of scripture exposition, wherein Pastor Jeff takes us through a selected book of the Bible, line on line, verse on verse, precept upon precept. Instead, we're doing an intentional stretch where we've been seeking to answer the question, what are the marks of a healthy church? What are the marks of a healthy church? As a local church body, we're asking ourselves, what are the essentials we have to focus on to be able to say with integrity that we here at Anchorage Grace Church are healthy? With regard to focus and effort, are we being obedient? Are we being biblical? Are we correctly correctly aligning with what the Lord would have us do and do well? Of course, God is sovereign, and it is by His providential blessing and protection that we soldier on in faith here at 12407 Pintel Street. A lot goes on here all week long, especially when school is in session. But there are choices we do make. Uh, We make choices individually, and we make choices corporately as a church body, and these are determinative of church health. And so far this summer, we brought some strong messages on a few of these determinative choices. Messages on healthy church marks of commitment to expository preaching, of commitment to biblical theology, which focuses rightly on Christ as the centerpiece of Scripture, of commitment to a biblical view of salvation and conversion, Pastor Pete preached us through that two Sundays in a row. And now today we're entering into part two of a two-sermon series on the importance of local church membership, local church membership as the next March mark of church health. And last Sunday, Pastor Nathan Schneider gave you part one of this two-part series, and he's kind of a tough act to follow, so i ask for your grace this morning. Um, but he leaned heavily on a book uh, on church health written by Jonathan Lehman. And it looks like this. We have some in the back. It's just a little blue book. And uh, uh, Jonathan Lehman's associated with Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., and also the Nine Marks Ministry, which is Pastor Mark Dever, uh, who wrote a book called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Um, your pastor elder team here at Anchorage Grace, we recommend these books to you. Uh, we have a few copies in the back. You can get them on Amazon. Um, but, uh, again, we encourage you to read those. Uh, it's good media information. Also, if you were not here last week and uh, you haven't heard uh, Nathan's sermon online, I would encourage you to do so um, as a quick plug for uh, staying connected up to date on uh, any sermon series. We post these messages online. They're usually online within uh, about 24 hours or so after the Sunday service, and um, it's always good to stay connected. So that's our com website. So this morning, I'm going to be building on what uh, Nathan laid down uh, last week. I'm going to do this with three specific goals in mind, and here they are. The first and foremost goal is to win you to the idea that purposefully joining a local church through the means of a sound institutional process, and I'll explain what I mean by that a little bit later, is Christ's intended way to express that you are in fact a Christian and for you to live out the gospel reality of sanctification as the Apostle Paul exhorts in Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, 
not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And I'm going to argue that Christ does not only call us to join a local church in order to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but to submit, to submit to a local church. And Nathan argued last week that membership is a misleading word because of its modern cultural connotations. We're going to talk today about joining a local church in terms of submission, submission to the Christ-granted authorities of that local body. Very scary word, submit. But submission to God-ordained authority is a very important concept that every true Christian must understand and prayerfully apply. I want to next build on the submission concept to argue that while there may be myriad ways to purposefully join a church and to be affirmed in that union by the same church, actual membership is essentially the same everywhere true Christians gather on earth because Christ has given the local church the same task and also the same tools to accomplish that task, and we'll get into that in a few minutes. What is the task? It's to be a distinct, marked-off society that, through its very distinctness, blesses the nations and garners praise for the Heavenly Father. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew 5, verses 3 to 16, beautiful, beautiful passage, the Beatitudes, it perfectly describes this distinct, marked-off society that blesses. So we'll get to that. And what are the tools? The tools are authorities. Another scary word, authorities. Submission and authority. Authorities granted to the local church by Christ to do what? To guard the gospel. To affirm credible professions of faith. To oversee Christian discipleship. To teach disciples everything Christ commanded. And to exclude false professors of the faith. To exclude false professors of the faith. We'll be looking at Matthew 16, 18, and 28 to expand on these points. And finally, I want to ensure that you know how we at Anchors Grace Church approach and administer our process of someone purposefully joining our local church. And here I want to emphasize the how and the why behind the steps that we have in place. It's not a perfect one, but we believe it's a good one. I want to make the appeal that our AGC membership program will work for you, that it's certainly not anti-biblical. It's well-constructed and that we're getting ever better at faithfully administering our program. So with these three outcomes in mind, number one, you should purposefully join a local church. Number two, whatever the process, purposeful membership is the same. Everywhere true Christians gather together because the task and the tools are the same. And three, that we stand behind our membership process here at our church. Let me build my case to achieve these outcomes by first repeating and developing two very bold claims that Nathan made last week. Claim number one, Christ's church is not voluntary. It's not a voluntary organization, like a club or a business or a service organization. This is because of the gospel. And every good sermon ought to bring the gospel. And so I'm going to bring the gospel, first and foremost. Here, here we go. Your salvation is a sovereign work of God, and you are a, if you are a true Christian, you are de facto, in fact, in Christ's church. You are a member, not by choice, but by his saving grace. Your submissive response of faith 
to his gracious call, joins you to him, to all believers. This is the universal church. It is the glorious, eternal union of believers with Christ. And as Nathan put it last week, it's a two-for-one deal. With Christ comes all the fellowship all true believers have in Christ. A union and a fellowship. The truly converted automatically and eternally enter into through what? Grace alone. Grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. And as such, you were told last week, your membership in the universal church is not voluntary. God called you to it. If you are indeed a Christian, when you are saved through God's sovereign work in you, you are justified by your faith. You were imputed with the righteousness of Christ. Your sins were washed away by his precious blood sacrifice. You were born again. You are now indwelled with the living, eternal Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, according to the promise of the new covenant. You were adopted into the fellowship of all believers, past, present, and future, with the eternal royal family of God. And you were given an ironclad promise to one day be glorified. This is the gospel. It is good news. It is great news. It is brilliant news. What an amazing gift. What a glorious Savior we love and serve. In his universal church, we have hope, we have life, we have relationship, we have purpose and meaning, we have salvation. We cannot lose. We have Christ. We literally have the fellowship of the Trinity forever. Well, with so, so much to comfort us and so much to look forward to, tempting to just stop here. Call the sermon good. Like my family would say, Run on. And Amy doesn't want any bad dad jokes, so. But I got to keep going. I have to lay down a however, and there is a very big however to use in this transition to the next reality. With your salvation and conversion comes responsibility and mission work for a season. While you still exist here in life on earth, living, breathing, struggling, striving, growing, becoming, God graciously sets you on a new life path. In this yet sin cursed world, it's being born again. It's what Pete preached on. You have a mission. You are working out your own salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul says, as God works in you and through you for his good pleasure. You serve him on mission, on your unique mission, given to you through his providential care and by his grace. And we know. That a correct biblical view of the Christian life means a life that is not, and I repeat, not all about health and wealth and maximizing pleasure and success in the here and the now. No. No. Emphatically, no. No. As God purposefully sanctifies us, we toil. We suffer. We can expect persecution. We daily fight against our own sin nature. We're the target of the enemy and his schemes. In fact, we are exiles now. That's the picture. That's the picture of the scripture. We're exiles, citizens of a kingdom, not of this world. We're citizens who serve a king with authority over all authorities and for all time. And this is a reality that, frankly, brings the world against us. It brings anger and hatred and persecution from the enemy and the world. So we're sojourners who must now live and work in enemy territory. We're soldiers. We're forward deployed with a mission to advance the gospel while edifying one another and growing ourselves. 
And we trust Christ that the purpose is for our good and his glory. Romans 3, 5, verses 3 to 5. Romans 5, verses 3 to 5. If you want to open it up and take a look at it. It speaks to the struggle and the purpose in the struggle. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Flip over to Philippians 4, verses 6 to 8. It speaks to the choices we can make in the midst of the struggle. I love this passage. I've preached on this passage. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Our joy in the midst of pursuing our God-ordained mission behind enemy lines will not be a given. It's got to be a choice. There's a choice there. So how do we live in exile? That's the question. How do we live in exile? How do we sojourn in trust and obedience? How are we to soldier on, deployed behind enemy lines? Well, last week Nathan mentioned how some have wrongly answered these questions. He mentioned three types of erring Christians who have been negatively influenced by the culture. The first was a consumer Christian. This is the person who wants to have needs met, wants, wants to shop, as it were, as a consumer. The second was the distracted Christian who participates in Christian fellowship from an interest-driven motivation. This person seeks niche or preference ministries over and above authentic fellowship. And then the third is a new one, uh, just based on advances in technology. It's the solitary or lone wolf Christian who feeds alone on YouTube or Facebook or through some other electronic means, never entering into relationship with the local church. Well, I would argue the common thread in each of these erring approaches to living the authentic Christian life is selfishness, and moreover, at the root, a bold rejection of authority. That's coming strong, but hopefully I'll be able to build a case for this, which is interesting because our culture raises up this kind of thinking as in a positive light. It's individualism. It's something that it's good to be, sort of stand on your own. Stand on your own two feet. Lift yourself up by your bootstraps. It's a good thing. Well, there's a negative side to it in the Christian walk. But I would also argue that all these Christians are erring in another way. They're naively ignoring the gravity of our exile status. The threat that's real in our sojourner in the enemy territory status. The significance of being a a deployed soldier. I'm really not trying to be a Debbie Downer this morning. I'm really not. But folks, uh, we have to face reality as Christians. We can't be lulled into everything is okay, as the culture would say. It's interesting, in my deployments overseas... I felt like there was 
spiritual protection more than physical protection. As I live here in our culture, I feel like there's physical protection and less spiritual protection. Interesting conundrum. But listen to this. This is 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 5. Clear warning. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Just watch one day of the 24-hour news cycle. All these descriptions ring true in our time, do they not? Boy, they do. And it's trending to the worse. So it seems. Again, I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer. I'm just trying to speak reality. Folks, I'm a almost 61-year-old man. <laughs> My birthday's in a month. Inside joke with Mrs. Hatter. Um, I've been to Warren back. As the insurance commercial goes, I've seen a thing or two. And I'm looking at our nation and the world in these perilous times, and I sense my own need for fellowship and encouragement. It's profound. And also, I'm sensing my need for accountability as ever more profound. The threat is real. We simply need each other, folks. We need to work out our salvation in fear and trembling together in this time and place in history. I believe it's the local church. In my own case, I believe it's Anchorage Grace Church that I need to submit to to meet that need. Leads us to bold claim number two. The local church is Christ's construct for fellowship, encouragement, and accountability. And joining the local church is intentional submission. We're to join the local church in submission in order to assure our kingdom citizenship. We're to join the local church in submission to foster the humble, selfless servanthood and fellowship demonstrated by Christ. And we're to join in submission in order to affect and protect the work that God has given us to do. Contributing our spiritual gifts to his blessed call as we labor behind enemy lines. And our submission is not misplaced because the local church is granted authority needed to achieve these things by Christ, by Christ, who is utterly trustworthy and who is the everlasting highest authority. Authority and submission. Authority and submission. This is really the rub area people struggle with most, I think. And it's not just regarding the idea of church membership, but it's across the board in life. And you know, this isn't really surprising Because submission is rooted in trust. And trustworthiness is very hard to find in a sin-cursed world. Trustworthiness is very hard to find in a sin-cursed world. All of us have been betrayed in some way or another. Someone we placed our trust in hurt us. A parent may have failed us, a teacher, a boss, a spouse, heaven forbid, a pastor. So people, myself included... In the wake of betrayal, we seek and find all kinds of creative ways to come all the way to the edge of commitment 
Do we not? But never come all the way in. Never come all the way in. To never fully commit, to never truly submit. For self-protection, people retreat. But here's the problem. Self-protection retreat modes truncate our growth. I would argue because they become emotional and spiritual barriers to the unity in Christ that is so important and so precious. Unity built on trust. Please don't misread me this morning. I, I would never underestimate the emotional pain or spiritual consequences of betrayal. It's one of those things that's so hard to get over. But Scripture commands unity. Scripture commands unity. I'm going to clip through several verses. You can try to keep up, but I'm going to keep going. John 17, verse 23, quotes Jesus. This is about unity and love. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 offers... Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Philippians 2, verses 1 to 3 says this, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Colossians 3, verse 14, commands, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And then John 13, verse 35, reminds, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then there's unity and purpose. Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 13, speaks to this. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So there's unity in love, there's unity in purpose, and then as far as possible, we should strive for unity in disagreement. Matthew 18, verse 15 commands, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Romans twelve sixteen exhorts, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. And then 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, reflects Paul's pleading, heart of pleading. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So how do we get there from here? How do we achieve such biblical unity, such Christ 
commanded unity. How do we do it? Well, we have to trust. Either for the first time or we have to persevere forward to trust again in the wake of a betrayal. But there is a key to success in trusting. And this key is found in the object of our trust. Who are you trusting in? Our trust must unshakably be found in him, Christ Jesus alone. That's where we need to look. Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 6 gives the key. Listen. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Boy, that one rolls off the lips, doesn't it? But think about that for a second. Do not lean on your own understanding. Think of all the barriers you put up in your mind on why I won't do this or I will do that. That's a command. But James 1, verse 6, remind us it's not going to be easy, not even remotely easy, that you'll have to work at it. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for what? The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea and is driven and tossed by the wind. This is graduate-level faith that we're called to. This is intentionality. Many Christians have no problem at all trusting Christ for their eternity, but they get stymied in this messy, behind-enemy-lines life we live with this idea of trusting Christ for their present, specific circumstances. Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about me. I don't like doing this, but it just struck me this might be a good way to get the message across. My, my personal breakthrough with overcoming debilitating doubt and fear by placing my trust in Christ, not just for my salvation, but also for my circumstances, was during my time in the military as a fighter pilot. I trusted Christ for my salvation when I went to war. I've told some of you that story. That was my conversion experience. But I've learned to trust Christ in all circumstances over a period of many years, and I'm still working on it. Believe me, I'm still working on it. Because my background and life experiences God has ordained for me in his providential care, I I see many parallels between serving one's country in the military and serving Christ in the church. Bear with me for a minute as I try to show you what I mean. So the fighter force in the U.S. Air Force is organized into fighting units called squadrons. These squadrons are made up of the people and equipment designed to achieve specific combat outcomes. They help America win our wars. Squadrons fit into a much larger organizational hierarchy, but the mission of the squadron, listen, the mission of the squadron is very clear, and mission success or failure hinges at this very basic fighting unit level. The headquarters can do so much, the National Command Authority can do so much, but the war fighting happens at the squadron level. It's success or failure at the basic fighting unit level. And there are clear standards to qualify to serve in such a fighting unit. There are clear levels of leaders who are placed in authority to enforce high ongoing standards. These leaders face rigorous selection processes to ensure they're mature, experienced, and competent. You want competent leaders, of course. Pilots are expected to grow in their capability in this structure and perhaps someday lead at a high level as a commander themselves. More importantly, pilots are expected to submit to the authority of leaders and peers alike. 
in order to achieve unity of purpose and mission effectiveness. The unit must operate as a team, as a finely tuned machine with each member contributing. The pursuit of excellence is at the core of every transaction, which is very important because sometimes the operating environment is life and death. There are strong accountability mechanisms with penalties for failure. Disqualification can result, or worse, there are punishments for willful disobedience, such as court-martial or even jail. All the cool Top Gun stuff aside, folks, air combat is serious, serious business. And faith in one another and trust in one's peers and leaders is a premium. Faith in one another and trust in one's peers is a premium. Can you see the parallels with the local church? I hope so. In both, there's purposeful mission organization. There's a clear mission to do. There are leaders and authorities. There are standards and expectations. Growth in its members is encouraged and expected, and there are accountability mechanisms. Faith in one another fosters highest and best service to the mission and the organization and is the catalyst to overall success. Trust, trust is a critical enabler to it all. So I learned in this secular squadron environment that I had to earn the trust of my peers. And more importantly, the trust of my commanders through both my performance and my attitude, my heart attitude. And I'll admit to you, as a younger guy, as a lieutenant, I would tend to go up to the edge, but not all the way in. I didn't trust the the way I needed to because the object of my trust, people, my peers and my bosses, I had some bad commanders. I knew them to be flawed. This limited my growth as a pilot and as a leader. This limited what others thought of me as well. I don't want to dwell here, but I, I do... I did not really begin to realize my God-given potential in the Air Force until I began the the work of trusting wholly in all circumstances in Jesus Christ. I made Christ the object of my faith, and it made all the difference. I had to work hard at intentionally forgoing doubts about this boss or that possible assignment or that conflict or that whatever. All the circumstances that come at us day to day, you can get wrapped around the axle worrying about it, or you can soldier on and trust Christ. It's it's a choice. There has to be intentionality here. I had to really push myself to be obedient to the Scripture and rest in God's sovereignty regarding the call upon me and my life in every circumstance. It took work. I had to push myself. I had to keep remembering to not put conditions on God in relation to changing circumstances. Not put any conditions on God. Well, if I do this, then you'll do that for me, Lord, or whatever, you know. It's not not how it works. You basically put your trust in Christ. And there are times where you get outside of that model and, and different accountability mechanisms kick in place. When I'm talking about healthy, normal submission, what God expects of you. Paul described his personal ministry version of this kind of correct heart attitude in Philippians 3, verses 12 to 14, and I'll read it. 
Not that I have already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Gives me goosebumps to read a verse like that. A very important aspect of this ongoing change in me, I'll tell you, was the local church. I came all the way into the local church, wherever we happened to be stationed, and I grew because of that. My church family supported me like family. Well, I get to work alongside Sandy Johnson every day. She doesn't know I'm going to say this. And she is such a positive person and such a blessing to me and to this church family. I told Sandy that I was going to charge at this proverbial windmill of authority and submission on Sunday. And, and she kind of said, good luck with that. <laughs> and then she said to me in her inimical way that if she was asked to explain the importance of local church membership, she would just gush about all the incredible benefits of being all in. It's like everything from marriage to parenting to working out and dieting, she said, you get out of it what you put into it. I think we're saying the same things. I'm just taking a lot longer this morning. (laughs) So membership commits you, the Christian, to other Christians in love and service. This is good for you, and you grow. It's meant to be a close family connection. Membership opens others in the body to serve and love you. Others will watch over you spiritually. You have a whole church of people publicly committed to you. And membership brings leader care and protection. Elders are accountable to God for how they provide for you, pastor you, and protect you. Those of us who are counted as elders are accountable to God for you. Just like as a dad, I'm accountable to God for my sons and daughters. I'm accountable to God for you. Membership is a spiritual safety net for you as you battle your own sin impulses and the attacks of the enemy. You'll have a church full of people who will help you live a life that's pleasing to God. That sounds like health. That sounds like church health. And then there's the assurance of your salvation. Your church family is here to assuage your doubts and to affirm the validity of your conversion. That's really, really important. Really, really important. Because we're Christians, we're in a special union. The local church is how we live out that special union. In joint submission, we as authentic Christians work out our salvation in fear and trembling. And as we labor together, we earn and build the trust essential to successfully pursuing unity when we trust Christ, not just for our salvation, but for everything. We build the unity Christ commands upon the intentionality of trusting the one who is trustworthy. We set our doubts aside. We come all the way in. And then here's what is best and unique about the church that I did not nor could ever 
fully find in a fighter squadron. Or in any secular pursuit for that matter. And this is a new thought, so listen carefully. Church unity, like the Holy Trinity, is experiencing love. I have the word love in all capital letters in my notes. If trust is the high premium in the world, love is the higher and highest premium in all of creation. Love is the higher and highest premium in all of creation. Love is what holds it all together. And it's written in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Well, hopefully, Sandy and I have come some way towards winning you to the idea that purposefully joining a local church is Christ's intended way for you to express that you are, in fact, a Christian and for you to live out the gospel reality of Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13, working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So, you would say, Steve, you might be thinking, I get it, I'm not an authority, a verse person. I do attend faithfully. I give. I serve. I just haven't ever filled out a membership packet or been interviewed by an elder. Haven't I already purposefully joined the church? Well, graciously, I say the short answer is no. I do offer a gracious love-inspired no, but it's still no. Jonathan Lehman argues in his book that right relationship, one that is fully operating as Christ intended, is both organic and institutional. Both organic and institutional. And he uses marriages as an example. I married to Cynthia now for 36 years and counting. Thank you, dear. Uh, if we were to talk about my marriage organically, we would talk about all the wonderful things that a married couple gets to do. We live together. We make a home together. We've had children together, a whole bunch of them, five. We share confidences, and lately, Mrs. Hatter has me climbing peaks. (laughs) One a week (laughs) so far this summer. So my legs are sore. We did one yesterday. Well, the benefits of of this kind of relationship are unspeakably wonderful because it's of God. It's of God. And however, to talk about marriage institutionally is to talk about the stuff our culture doesn't want to talk about. It's to talk about things our culture understands less and less and is starting to leave behind. Serious, gravity-filled covenant commitment language like, we gather together in the sight of God in the face of community to join together this man and woman. If anyone can show just cause why they may not be lawfully joined, dot, 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 with this ring I thee wed. For better or worse, I forsake all others till death do us part. You get the idea. There's seriousness. There's covenant commitment language there. Institution, I would argue, creates meaningful grips. It's guarantees, as it were, through covenant promises and proclamations. And we know God is a covenant maker and keeper. The entire Old Testament is about covenant making and covenant keeping. Covenant keeping on one side of the ledger covenant breaking on the other. God never fails to fulfill his promises. We fail every day in keeping our end of the bargain. But God is a covenant maker. So promises in this way do matter. 
And the marriage certificate is not just a piece of paper, as so many in our times would argue. How many times have you heard somebody say that? Ah, it's just a piece of paper. Well, it's not just a piece of paper. It's a symbol of commitment coming all the way in because marriage is God's idea and it does exist. Institution meets organic and it must or the relationship lacks integrity. And more importantly, it lacks true accountability. It's much easier to walk away if there's no institutional grip. In the same way, the local church is God's idea. It does exist. And the institution, therefore, must meet organic here as well. The relationship lacks integrity and accountability if we, if we do otherwise. Absent an institutional process, how can the church affirm one's profession of faith? Or, to be more, more blunt, how can the church exercise its Christ-given authority to exercise church discipline, should it be required? Always in love and compassion. But you can't do it absent a purposeful joining process where there's submission under authority. Well, with our, our Christian school, Grace Christian School, we know and love lots of fellow believers who attend at Change Point or FCC or somewhere else in town. We love these churches. We love these people. And you could say that we, together with these folks, belong in the body of Christ, and you'd be right, that we're the people of God, and you'd be right, and we're the universal church, and you'd be right. Furthermore, we're called to love each other. You'd be right. We pray for each other, absolutely. We encourage each other, of course. We rebuke each other occasionally, yes. And we even care financially as occasion requires. There's love, there's synergy. But I have to ask, is there a difference in relationship between two Christians who belong to the same church and two Christians who belong to different churches? How does my relationship with a good friend, say from FCC, differ from my relationship with, say, Pete Johnson? Am I, as a member of Anchorage Grace Church, obligated to the two individuals differently? If there is no difference, then we have to say the local church does not exist. This would be like saying, using the marriage analogy, there's no difference between my relationship with my wife in marriage and my relationship with other women. Cynthia would be pretty upset if I made that statement. But I know my marriage does exist. Praise God. And is built on a nexus of organic and institutional reality. So there's a huge difference in the relationships. Likewise, a local church does exist. And there must be a difference in the relationship. And here it is. Here's what the difference is. My church and I are capable of exercising formal church discipline over Pete. But not over my good friend who attends at FCC. Jesus has given me, a fellow church member with Pete, a formal judicial role to play in Pete's life. And Pete has the same role in my life, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for Pete. Of course, this role must be exercised with the greatest of care and compassion. But discipline is actually discipling. Discipline is discipling. And it is as necessary in the authentic church as any function. 
the, the big elephant in the room. It's the big thing people don't want to talk about. But it's so important. Just like it's important in a family, exercising discipline as mom and dad is important. If you blow off that responsibility, well, there's no authority granted you as a parent, how can you possibly raise your kids? So what is the right balance of organic and institutional? What is the right balance that's going to result in a process that creates the Christ-commanded relationship with all the rights and the benefits and the responsibilities and the accountabilities? How do we do that? How do we do that without the process being anti-biblical? We definitely do not want to get outside of Scripture. Well, before I answer that, I want to drive home one final time, as I mentioned earlier, the task and the tools of the local church. So what is the task? It's to be a distinct, marked-off society that through its very distinctness blesses the nations and garners praise for the Heavenly Father. Open up your Bibles to Matthew 5. Take a look at verses 3 to 16. This is precious, precious scripture. I'm not going to read through it all. But here is a description of the distinct marked-off society that blesses. We're to be salt and light. We are to be salt and light. This is our mission, salt and light behind enemy lines. This is where we're going to find blessing and communion with God. And what are the tools to do this? They're authorities, that scary, scary word, authorities. Authorities granted to the local church by Christ. To do what? To do what? To guard the gospel. That's military language. To affirm credible professions of faith. That's high accountability. To oversee Christian discipleship. That's huge responsibility. To teach disciples everything Christ commanded. Again, commanded. That's military language. And to exclude false professors of the faith. Oh no, that's exclusive. We want the gospel to go out. We want people to come in, but we want it to be authentic. We want it to be real. We don't want it to be a false false gospel. So we have a responsibility there to exclude false professors of the faith. Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20, and Nathan preached on this last week, describes what the affirmation criteria is. That a person can say, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the authority granted for us to be able to discern that is this, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Wow. What a responsibility. What a responsibility. We have to take that seriously. Matthew 18 repeats the authority language in the context of escalating church discipline steps. If you don't think discipline's in the Bible, you've got to go take a look. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, do what? Tell it to the church. We don't like to do this. this. This is hard. This is hard stuff, but there's hard stuff in marriage. There's hard stuff in parenting. There's hard stuff in serving government. There's hard stuff in everything we do. 
Let's just be honest about it. This is important. Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's not being mean and putting someone out of the church. It's challenging their salvation. Right? We want people to be saved. We don't want them duped. We don't want them wrapped around the axle in lies. So this is an important function of the local church. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Matthew 28, verse 18, affirms the authority granted to us, granted to the local church. And it comes from where? The only legitimate source in the universe. The eternal, eternal source of authority. And Jesus came and said to them, what? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then God, the Trinity, our Lord Jesus, grants the local church those authorities. That's a big deal. Really important. So if, if this is the task and these are the tools, what is the right balance of organic and institutional that will result in a process here at Anchor's Grace that's going to help us live out our Christ-commanded relationships, rights, benefits, responsibilities, and accountabilities. How do we do this without the process being anti-biblical? Well, again, Jonathan Lehman has put some clear thought towards this, and he argues the structures and strategies may look different depending on a church location and other factors, but essentially the end result is the same. And he does a good comparison. He contrasts a church in urban Washington, D.C., his church, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, with one in an Asian city where almost everyone is Muslim. In the urban church, he argues there are societal complexities to overcome that make it, diff- make it difficult to oversee credible professions of faith. Job transients, church size, people spread all over the place, demanding work schedules, church hopping, cultural trends, individualism, consumerism, there's just a lot a church is up against. And you can't do a credible assessment of someone's profession of faith over email. And there's more, there's more challenges. We have those challenges. In the Asian country, it's very different. They're secretive. They're underground. They're in church houses. They're hiding from government persecution. And so it's a whole different picture. And they have different problems. It's a really good discussion, and it's worth your time. In the interest of finishing on time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on Capitol Hill Baptist Church and what they do to bring in a new member. Um, I'd encourage you to read about the Asian, Asian church in Muslim territory. It's fascinating. Capitol Hill is very thorough in their process, beginning with membership classes. And they do, they do six how serious they are, that focus on the church's statement of faith, covenant, history, ministries, and other elements of life in the congregation. Once you're through the classes, if a person is still interested in joining, they seek a meeting with an elder, and they share their testimony. And they're asked to explain the gospel. Can you explain the gospel? In your own words, out of your heart. It's an important thing to be able to do if you're a true believer. And then the elder discerns whether to bring the person forward to the plurality of elders for a vote of approval 
and recommendation to the whole congregation. So at Lehman's Church, the whole congregation at a business meeting affirms the elders' vote. Well, Jonathan Lehman will freely admit that what they do sounds and looks pretty bureaucratic and that none of these administrative details come out of Scripture directly. And he laments this to some degree. But then he also says this, and I'm quoting, A church in most secularized global cities today simply cannot do what the Bible commands churches to do in affirming and overseeing Christ's citizens without some set of structures like this. Both, he goes on to say, I believe the differences between the Central Asian church and the American models are essentially cosmetic. Both churches are accomplishing the same objectives. And listen to this. It's the proclamation, the display, and the protection of the gospel through the lives of its formerly affirmed members. Well, what both churches do is they try to find the sweet spot between the organic and the institutional. And they ensure that it's not anti-biblical. And we try to do the same thing here at Anchorage Grace. We strive for the same sweet spot. The sweet spot that takes into account our geographic and cultural setting here in a transient city. We have a membership packet that seeks to discern a prospective member's spiritual status. And we want to affirm this person can say what? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And mean it. And have it come from the heart. Because their heart has been transformed. Their conversion is real. We want to affirm this person's salvation and conversion are genuine. And if there are concerns, difficulty explaining their faith, explaining their conversion, explaining the gospel, this is an opportunity. It's a marvelous opportunity to pastor someone, to lead a person to the Lord, maybe for saving faith the very first time. In the packet, we have copies of our membership covenant and our church's statement of faith. So a joining believer and we, the church, can ensure we're doctrinally aligned. It's been centuries of drift, of liberalism. We want to make sure that we're on the same page doctrinally. It's critically important. And once a person's membership package is complete and received by the elders and pastors, we pursue that person and we have a meeting and we talk through the packet. And we also ask people either through the membership packet or through the conversational meeting, about their understandings of and views towards church attendance. Being committed means being committed. You should come to church. I get it. In Alaska, there's lots of reasons in the summer to maybe take a break, and that's okay. We're not legalistic here, but it's the hard attitude of being intentional. I need to be here. We need to be here together. We need each other. Views on giving. Giving is a blessing. It's, it's a way to worship. It's a super important topic to be mature and, and right in your doctrinal view on giving. And we can talk about baptism and spiritual life. These are really, really important things. And on communion and church leadership. Church leadership is a big deal for folks. And once the interview is complete... The elders will prayerfully consider a vote to affirm 
at uh, one of our regular meetings where we meet once a month. And then with a positive vote, we extend the right hand of fellowship to the new member. This is our institutional means to fulfill our responsibilities under the local church authorities given to us by Christ. It's not just a packet. It's an important process. I will say as a new initiative, uh, we're also looking to begin a membership class to be offered in the fall. I'll be teaching that. I'm looking forward to doing that. More on that later. But I'm going to close. I I already have have mentioned the very good books that we have, uh, this being one of them. They're in the back. We also have our church's philosophy of ministry paper on church membership from 2011. And those are in a stack back there by the giving box. And we have some membership packets if you want to take them with you and look through them. Just, just look through them in light of what I preached on this morning. And come to us with questions. We want to talk to you. But as a bit of a tease to an upcoming church health message on biblical leadership as a mark of church health, I'm going to offer a verse from the New Testament book of Hebrews. It's Hebrews 13, verse 17. I'm going to read it. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So in the context of what I just preached on this morning and looking ahead to this biblical leadership sermon, here's two questions I'll leave you with. Two questions. First, if there's no biblical requirement for joining in membership to a local church, then which leaders should an individual Christian obey and submit to? Question number two, and this one's more personal. If I, as a leader, will give an account for you aren't connected through a joining process, who am I to give an account for? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for just the people who have assembled here for an attentive audience. Uh, Thank you, Lord, that you're so good. Thank you for the gospel. We pray for a good week. We pray for uh, your truth to sink in. And uh, we just pray for the blessing and protection over this blessed church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.